According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3, as we continue on in our examination of the baptism of Jesus Christ, we're primarily looking at uh, verses 13 through 17, although we've been really in the first 12 verses um, over the last couple of weeks introducing John the Baptist. And uh, there he goes. <laughs> we do need to work on some more signals and things. We've got some... Real neat stuff coming in. Some cameras coming in. We're going to be able to monitor the glass doors, the back door, everything. And, and all of the video feeds are going to go to that monitor back there. So the person that's doing the tape recording will also have uh, windows that pop up that can see the glass doors, the back door, and that. So we're going to work out a system of uh, alerts and signals and stuff where uh, he can point over to the bodyguard and he can run out there and deal with who needs to be dealt with. All right. I'm sure there was a temple office that sergeant-at-arms or some kind of uh, position there where the temple had soldiers that could go out and deal with issues, and that's uh, what we're trying to get set up here. All right. Well, then, if you're all in Matthew chapter 3, let's start with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to sanctify our time, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful this morning that you have provided us the time and the means to be here. We thank you for providing the truth of your word. We thank you for the freedom in our nation to assemble together and receive instruction, that we can meet in a public building with a sign out front, with an advertisement in the newspaper. Father, we, uh, uh, we're delighted when visitors come in, Father. We're not fearful that they might be government agents that are here to spy us out and shut us down. So we do thank you for your faithfulness in this regard. And we ask for your hand of blessing upon us now as we open your word. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are probably going to be wrapping this up here today, moving on to the temptation event next week. But for to now, uh, we can understand that under point one, we've given you the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. It was a wilderness preaching ministry. He did not uh, set up shop in uh, downtown Jerusalem. He did not march into the temple and announce himself. But he uh, preached in the wilderness, and the audience that heard him, though those who heard of him, had to go out to him in order to hear his message and in order to investigate what he was all about. And in fact, they did so. They did so in great numbers. The uh, indication is that uh, all of Jerusalem and Judea. Verse 5 is an extraordinary statement where it says Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. See, that's directly backwards from how the Pharisees had it set up, how the Sadducees had it set up to all of the schools of the day where Jerusalem was the centerpiece. And if you wanted to go get the finest teaching, you had to go to sit at the feet of Gamaliel, for example, or you had to... Um, enroll in one of the rabbinic schools that were in fierce competition one with another. He was out in the wilderness, and those who wanted teaching went out to him, and he was really unique in so many ways. And the Lord likewise will experience that, though people will be scratching their heads and saying, this is amazing, we never heard anything like this before. He teaches with authority, and none of our teachers teach this way. And uh, we will examine uh, a number of instances like that here coming up. 
Interesting, too, that we have confrontation under point two. When the religious political leaders came to participate in the baptism ritual, John confronted them like Elijah before the prophets of Baal. And quite often, sound teaching will be confrontational. As quite often, as the Word of God rebukes and it reproves and it corrects, quite often uh, it flies in the face of things that uh, believers have gotten very comfortable with, especially if believers have legalism in their background, (laughs) whether it's Baptist legalism or Catholic legalism or any other form of legalism, Jewish legalism, doesn't matter. Quite often, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, Bible teaching is going to fly in the face of that. It's going to ruffle some feathers. And so that's a good thing when it happens, because the Word of God should be reproving and rebuking and exhorting and instructing with great patience and instruction. So that we have the same thing here. Now, here are the religious leaders, and they're not even saved. They need Christ, and he calls them a brood of vipers and the things that happen there. Very confrontational, very much like Elijah with the prophets of Baal. We spent a little bit of time last week going back to First Kings and looking at that looking at that episode. And John was very much in the mold of, of Elijah, and... Many of the Old Testament prophets were very confrontational in the things that they did and, and uh, issues there. Under point three, when John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary and the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. And we've looked at this a number of times here uh, from the standpoint of Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to go ahead and turn over to John 3 this morning and get a parallel gospel account and in reality a... Um, remarkable statement of humility here. And following the baptism in particular, this skips ahead a little bit from where we are this morning, but still it gives us a glimpse into the mental attitude, into the thinking of the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And in John 3... um, for a little while, after the baptism of Christ, for a little while there was a, a contemporary ministry there between Christ and the Baptist, not too far from one another. And uh, verse 22 says, After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. All right, That is, the disciples were baptizing under the Lord's teaching. He himself wasn't baptizing. We understand that from chapter 4 and verse 2. But then in 3.23, John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So there was a little bit of overlap. John continued to have some ministry for a short time after he baptized Christ and until his arrest. Verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And uh, then in verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So they're reporting, and it's interesting, is that um, the discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew was about purification, and yet the matter they took to the Baptist was not about this purification issue, but it was about the numbers. It was about the growth, the increase in ministry. They uh, they were handling the purification question just fine, and they were able to debate with the Jew all day long, and that was no big deal. But with respect to the numbers that were coming, that's where the disciples of John the Baptist were really having a hang-up, see. And this 
uh, begs the question, so to speak, why does John still have disciples? <laughs> you know, who are these disciples of John the Baptist? And we'll see a number of them followed after the Christ, like Peter and Andrew, James and John, a number of those that had been disciples of John the Baptist. Once Christ was baptized, they followed after Christ. And my question is, how come all of them didn't follow Christ? Why did why did some of them stay following John the Baptist? See, and uh, kind of an interesting thing there. And the, it, I think it gives a, a glimpse or an insight into how denominations work today, <laughs> and how people get comfortable with where they are. And by golly, that's where they're going to stay no matter what. And, and uh, we're going to promote our own deal and what's going on here, and support our own pastor and our own church and our own denomination and all of that. Why did the Baptist even have followers at this point so rabbi he who was with you beyond the jordan to whom you have testified behold he is baptizing and all are coming to him in other words there's a church across the street here and their parking lot is packed out sunday after sunday after sunday they're overflowing they filled their parking lot now they're parking up and down the street and 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 we're kind of dwindling here (laughs) and so john answered and said a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven all right, it's almost like Job with the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. See, they got a packed out parking lot. That's great. The Lord's doing wonderful things over there, isn't he? The Lord's, uh, we got a rather thin parking lot these days. Well, you know what? The Lord's taken away. This is when we're functioning now in the capacity of what he has supplied. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He says, this is the way it should be. I'm glad his ministry is taking off. I'm glad my ministry is dwindling. That's the way it ought to be. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He knew what his role was. He knew what Christ's role was, and he was glad that the Christ ministry was taking off and his was diminishing. You know, when the wedding is over, it is the groom that walks off with the bride. <laughs> The bridegroom, I mean, the best man, he he's still there after it's all said and done. Has to kind of, you know, clean up and take care of some other things. But, you know, it's the groom that walks out with the bride. And that's the way it needs to be. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's verse 30. And what a statement. What a statement. And this reflects his humility. This reflects his perspective. Jesus said there was no one greater born among women, and I think that right there reflects the humility that he had. What a humble believer. And yet the greatest of those born among women, and he knew, hey, my day is over. I accomplished my purpose. He must increase, but I must decrease. Perhaps, uh, you know, how little did he know how that that, that decrease was going to involve uh, arrest, imprisonment, losing his head. You know, he was going to decrease by about a foot. You know, <laughs> in his height. <laughs> All right. He didn't know maybe the form that that decrease was going to take. But he knew it was going to happen. All right. And he had the humility to accept it. And he didn't get all worked up about it. Why do believers, we get all excited and jazzed when the Lord opens doors. And we say, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Here's a prayer request. We can celebrate. Answer to prayer. We have an open door opportunity. Hooray, hooray. But that same passage in Revelation that talks about the Lord opening doors, it also says he closes doors. Why, why don't I ever hear hallelujah prayers and stuff about closing doors, about ministries getting smaller, about uh, other opportunities that have been removed? Aren't those just as much a part of the Lord's sovereignty and wisdom? They certainly are. 
So here's the Baptist able to celebrate a closed door, able to celebrate a ministry that hadn't run its course. It's done its job, and now it should fade away. Uh, as the book of Hebrews says, whatever is obsolete is ready to disappear. So the herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. And this is point four. The herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. So let's go back to Matthew 3 now and take a look at the actual event. Matthew chapter 3. We've done a lot of preparation. We've dealt a bit with the, the contrast, the conflict with the religious leaders. Let's actually look at verse 13 now. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now let's remind ourselves what John's baptism was all about. It says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. The purpose clause there and the activity involved being repentance, a change of thinking. All right? And I actually said something last week that we would get to one of these other passages, and I failed to do that, didn't I? So let's look. Let's see, do I want to do... Do I want to do Mark or Luke? Let's go ahead and do Luke. So go to Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. I forgot I made that promise to you last week. Let's go to Luke chapter 3. Get a little bit fuller understanding about this repentance. All right. What some of this is about. Luke 3.3 3 says, And he, this is John the Baptist, uh, verse 2, The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. That's where he's been raised from birth. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Very important that we understand this. He's not giving a gospel message. He's not preaching a salvation message. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is unique. Nothing like it before, nothing like it since, until we get to second advent, and Elijah's ministry will be quite similar. We know that because of Malachi 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, so this is a way of preparing for the coming of the Christ. Verse 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. All right, the warning is not designed for the offspring of the serpent. The warning is not designed for unbelievers, it's designed for believers. The repentance warning is a message for believers, carnal believers, believers that are caught up in religion and aren't making application, believers that aren't walking in the light, that aren't bearing fruit. It is not a message of warning to unbelievers. That's why he can say, who warned you to flee? The, the warning to flee is a warning given to believers. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you are indeed a believer, act like it. Bear that kind of fruit. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If you are truly saved, live that way. And do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. See, don't allow for racial pride to creep in or any other sort of pride to creep in there. 
For the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. This is all very similar to the Matthew account. But now notice in verse 10, it gets expanded a bit beyond what Matthew recorded. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Now these are just given as, for instances, as examples. There were many more than this, but these are just given by way of example. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is wise in legalism and what was theirs was theirs and what was theirs they earned and they worked for they deserved and all of that they weren't going to share John said you know you better get a grace attitude before the Christ appears the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you're too wrapped up in legalism and don't have any grace some soldiers were questioning him saying what about us what shall we do alright now it's not entirely clear if these were Jewish soldiers, most likely they were. Conceivably, they could have been uh, Roman soldiers, see, Gentiles even. I, th- I think it's more likely that they were Jewish soldiers, that they were the temple uh, guards and so forth. And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. You know, soldiers in the ancient world had quite an ex- uh, a protection racket going for them that they could, uh, you know, guarantee safety and protection uh, from, you know, into Jerusalem, into the temple, and, and no one will hassle you and will protect you. And, well, you know, that's just a protection racket. Or uh, accuse anyone falsely. You know, the word of a police officer was... was worth quite a bit in testimony in court and you know depending on how the guard testified one way or the other your your legal matter could be uh could be secure or it could be sunk you know just depending on who you paid off and what kind of testimony he offered and be content with your wages the ways that uh they could earn a little money on the side, so to speak, through these nefarious means. Well, that's the way the world works. But believers shouldn't be using cosmos methods in what they're doing. Believers should be serving as unto the Lord. Believers should be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so we see these things. Now, none of these deeds of righteousness can earn salvation. None of them. See, that's why it is for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So you can't share enough tunics, you can't share enough cloaks, you can't uh, uh, not take bribes, you can't turn over a new leaf, you can't start living righteously and earn your way into heaven. But if you are a believer, this is the way you should be living. And if you are a believer and you're expecting your king to show up at any moment and usher in the kingdom, then now's a good time to repent. <laughs> you know, now's a good time. The whole idea of imminency is so vital because it can be today. We live under the concept of imminency in the church. We're anticipating the rapture. This generation was living under concepts of imminency. They were expecting the kingdom. Have I said that before? Do you understand why there are so many parallels here with where we are today and where they were then? Because both us now and they then were functioning under imminency, waiting for the kingdom of heaven. It's at hand, waiting to be revealed. Likewise, you and I are waiting for the rapture. It is at any moment. So the parallels are there. And now would be a good time. (laughs) You know, the time already passed is sufficient for you. You know, however much time of carnality, that's water under the bridge. All right, enough of that. Now is a good time to keep the short account, to confess, to get right, to be on track, 
to be found faithful when he returns. As we say, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. It doesn't say be sloppy and be found by him in, in, uh, without peace, in carnality and defilement. You want to be caught carnal when you hear the trumpet? <laughs> you want to be caught out of fellowship with your armor off in darkness when you hear the trumpet? There's not a lot of time to confess in that twinkling of an eye when you're snatched up to be uh, with the Lord in the air. I don't want to be caught carnal. You know, blessed is that slave whose master finds so doing when he returns. I want to be found in fellowship, doing the business of my father, walking in the light, bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. So this message of repentance, this is not a Billy Graham evangelism crusade. John the Baptist is not an evangelist leading people to Christ. He is uh, a forerunner rebuking carnal believers saying, get back in fellowship, get right with the Lord, get ready, your king is coming. That has got to be perfectly clear. So, that's what his baptism was all about. And carnal believers, those uh, we see, they're coming here, we've got soldiers coming here, we've got a bunch of others coming here, and saying, well, what do we need to do? You know, what do we need? My, my, they're coming to the prophet saying, you know what, my Christian walk is a mess. I'm involved in all this extortion, I'm stealing this, and I'm not living like a, like a believer should be living. What do I need to do? So it was very much a message of a ministry of repentance and a ministry of uh, serving the Lord, getting ready for him to, to uh, appear. So, as we see now, then Jesus shows up. Now here's the one guy on the whole planet <laughs> that doesn't need to confess anything, has nothing whatsoever to repent of. Here is the, of, of all the, the believers in the world that, that need to come and need to uh, make sure that they're right for the kingdom. Well, he's already right for the kingdom. He's the king. He's right. There's no sin. Nothing to confess. And, and this is what has John all stumped. He says, wait a minute. John tried to prevent him. All right, so let's go back to Matthew 3 now. And we'll uh, look at verses 13 through 17. Jesus arrived at the Ga- from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. He's coming to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him. He said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been doing this baptism, and we don't know for how long. A year? Six months? We don't know. Short time, evidently. And uh, there's a number of disciples now that are prepared, that have gone through this process. They've publicly identified in a way that has never happened since, in a way that the church is never told to do. There is no uh, church-age authority. And you can, you can read Genesis to Revelation and specifically the epistles. There is no church-age basis for any believer to stand up and publicly confess their sins to anybody. 
All right? Because it's none of my business, none of your business, none of nobody else's business between you and the Lord. He forgave it. Confess it to him in the privacy of your own priesthood. But this very unique time, here are these believers, and they're stepping forward, and they're confessing, asking the, this prophet, well, what do I do? He says, well, quit stealing. <laughs> you know? And they're coming forward, they're confessing, they're being baptized, and they're entering into... Um, Preparing to be entered into the kingdom. Alright? So this is unique. Now here's the Christ and John says you have nothing to repent of. Nothing to confess. Nothing to uh, change. How do you change perfection? Alright? I have need to be baptized by you. Because you're the sinless and perfect one and I'm the sinner. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, answering said to him, Permit it at this time. So this is, when he says permitted at this time, uh, this is, uh, you know, just this once. Allow this to happen. This needs to happen. This is not what you normally do. But just this once, you're going to do something different. Just this once. And the baptism of Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. When you start to track all of the baptisms in Scripture, and you can do this, just get a concordance and find all the words baptism, and you'll find, and we tend, we tend to break them down, the baptism of John. That was one kind of baptism. It was for repentance. It was for preparation believer to enter into the kingdom of God. All right, the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. Then the uh, baptism of Jesus Christ. What we're about to look at here in verses 13 through 17, where he was, uh, this was for repentance, this was for his anointing. Then there's the baptism of the church. The water ritual that we participate in, which is not for repentance, not for the forgiveness of sins, but it is to identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. All right, totally separate from the baptism that John did. Obviously, totally separate from the baptism that Jesus Christ experienced. Of course, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with both a church age application and ultimately a millennial application. Because all Israel will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and ushered into a prophetic office in the millennial age. You and I are baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are sealed in Christ. It's also a baptism of Moses. Scripture talks about. They passed through the Red Sea. Okay, There's, uh, and None of them went back. <laughs> even the losers that died in unbelief, that died the sinner to death, that Exodus generation, they died in the wilderness. Not one of them went back to Egypt. Not one. Okay? And there's a few others. There's a false baptism out there that uh, we're told about, the baptism for the dead. can't remember if it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. So we might have it coming up in 1 Corinthians. Otherwise, it's in 2 Corinthians and it's further down the road. Anyway, just do a study like that and start recognizing, man, there's a whole lot of different baptisms that are out there. All right? And so what we're looking at here, John the Baptist says, I can't baptize you 
Because mine is a baptism for repentance, and the Lord says, well, you can do it this one time because I'm not here for that. <laughs> We're about to do something different. And it may seem the same, because you're going to dunk me into the water and I'm coming back up, and it may seem the same, but it's something entirely different. Plus the fact that, of course, Christ isn't going to be confessing any sins. And it's going to be entirely different in that the heavens are going to be opened and that the Holy Spirit is going to descend as a dove and that the booming voice is going to announce the Son. And that's something different than ever happened with any of these others that, that uh, came. All right, The soldier or this other guy or the Pharisees or Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we know we're there. So, he says, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting, it is proper, it is appropriate I love the way that Scripture uses concepts like fitting, appropriate. Because God is concerned about right and wrong. Not only in the things we do, but in the way that we do them. See, quite often something can be just, it can be valid, it can be right, but we can do it in the wrong way. You know what God says? He says that's wrong. (laughs) You can do it at the wrong time. God says, guess what? That's wrong. You can do it for the wrong reasons. That's wrong. See, we talk about um, anything, giving, for example, grace gifts, financial grace gifts, and what have you. There's, there's a right way and a wrong way. And you can, you can drop ten bucks in the, in the plate and, or the, the box, and, and you can do it for the wrong reasons. And guess what? It's wrong. Or at the wrong time, or with the wrong motivation, or in the wrong manner by, you know, waving your arms and showing everybody, hey, look at this. You know, look what I'm doing. Alright? The, 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 but the deed itself is the same. You know, somebody who's humble, somebody who with the right motivation, somebody who loves the Lord and offers an offering. Well, physically, those two people are doing the exact same thing. Dropping ten bucks in the plate, let's say. But the motivations are entirely different. One's right, the other's wrong. It's not the deed, it's the way that it's done. So scripture in many places focuses on it is fitting, it is proper, it is appropriate. Not just here, but throughout the New Testament we have things that are fitting for believers to do. And it is fitting for what? To fulfill all righteousness in order to conform with the absolute standard of God's righteousness, to conform with His design, we would say, then He permitted Him. Then He baptized Him. Okay? And after being baptized, you know, it's, it's kind of... You realize we, we, we focus a lot about the baptism of Jesus Christ, but you want to know where the baptism of Jesus Christ is? It's in between verse 15 and verse 16. Because <laughs> the Baptist says okay in verse 15, and then verse 16, after being baptized. You know? It's kind of like the millennium in Revelation. It's in between a couple of different verses. Because Satan is bound for a thousand years, and then the very next verse it says, after the thousand years were complete, blah, blah, blah. It goes on to, to, the, to the material. Are you Revelation chapter 21, just peek at that real quick. Maybe I'm not explaining it well enough. But, Revelation chapter 20, 
uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And that's in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 20. And then in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed. <laughs> you know? So uh, Satan's actually bound in verse 2, and then we start talking about resurrection and other things. But uh, in verse 6 it says, uh, Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed... Just like that. So when is the millennium in the book of Revelation? It's in between verse 6 and verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. <laughs> That's where it is. Where's the baptism of Jesus Christ? Well, it's in between verse 15 and verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3. So let's not get sidetracked by something that God stuck in between a couple of verses. And let's pay attention to what the verses are all about and get the reality of what's being taught. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Alright. So here's the event. And the aftermath of that event is the divine attestation of the beloved Son. The divine attestation of the servant in whom my soul delights. Subpoint A. Jesus Christ was sinless and perfect. He had no need to be baptized as a visible sign of his repentance. He did so anyway in order to identify with his brethren. He did so anyway in order to identify with his brethren. Israel was being baptized to enter into the kingdom. Here came their king. And he did so anyway in order to identify with his brethren. Isaiah 53.12 and elsewhere makes it clear that the identification was necessary. He was numbered with the transgressors. He, in other words, he was identified. He was counted as. He wasn't a transgressor. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, he wasn't a transgressor, but he was counted as if he was one. He identified with them. Indeed, he took their place. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Alright. I zipped up one, didn't I? How did I get there? There we go. Sinless and perfect. He had no need to be baptized as a visible sign of his repentance. He did so anyway in order to identify with his brethren. Isaiah 53.12. We're also going to see Isaiah. Oh, there's a number of these other ones we can look at. 45. We can look at Isaiah 40. Oh, there's so many. So many. 
Hmm. All right. Point B. The Holy Spirit and God the Father testify to his sonship. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, related back to Isaiah 42, 1. Again, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of prophets, priests, and kings, which we'll see here in a moment, the anointing of Jesus Christ, this officially begins his ministry. There's a lot of other legends and apocryphal books out there and a lot of stories about things he did when he was a little boy and miracles he did. And some of them are rather, I mean, if, if, if they're true, which I don't believe for a heartbeat, but you know, if you take some of these things, and he was quite a trickster, a little prankster, <laughs> you know. In any event, none of those are true. It's all garbage. We're told that his first miracle is turning water to wine in John 2, and then that didn't happen until after his, uh, after his baptism. This is his anointing. Everything he did prior to that was preparation, training for the ministry, we would say. As he grew up, as he learned to trade, as he took care of a widowed mother, as he raised these uh, younger brothers and sisters. The things that he did after the death of Joseph. He's about 30 years of age and he's probably closer to about 34, 35 years of age here. Being born, as we uh, put it, at uh, 4 B.C. or 5 B.C. All right. And uh, ministers for three and a half years. He's crucified in 33 A.D. You've got some of the chronology in your Harmony of the Gospel handout. You can refer to that. All right. And the Father also testified, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's interesting. When you look at verse 40, uh, chapter 42 of Isaiah and verse 1. And it's truly interesting here. This whole section of Isaiah is, is extraordinary. And um, particularly when you recognize all the angelic conflict that's, that's uh, presented in here. And all of the, uh, the empty uh, hopelessness of the, of the idols all of the empty hopelessness of all the false gods and how they uh, they can't see and they can't speak and they can't declare and they can't provide. There is uh, there is only one, okay, and it's uh, so much in this whole section of Isaiah here. But chapter forty-two. Uh, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And there's a lot of teaching, of course, that goes into election. The election of the church, the election of believers. Uh, there was also an election as it was as it was applied to Israel in the Old Testament. There's a doctrine of Israel's election in the Old Testament times. He was their uh, Israel was their chosen nation in the midst of the earthly nations. The church, of course, is his chosen people, a heavenly people called out of the earthly nations. But ultimately, every other aspect of being chosen comes back to Christ. Christ is the chosen one. The chosen one, as we see it here, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All right. So here is the one, the unique. This is the one that the father has determined that the whole plan in the ages is going to center on. And that's going to be Jesus Christ. Now, notice it's interesting because his, his, he's not named here. He just called my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him who will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice. 
nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. All right, now, this passage blends quite a bit in terms of what we understand now, first advent and second advent. We understand the silence. We understand not being crushed. And yet he is crushed. He's crushed but not crushed. There's a lot that if, if all we had was this passage, we'd be left confused maybe. <laughs> we'd be like the prophets of old who made careful search and inquiry trying to determine what uh, spirit or time, uh, person or time, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as they predicted the, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We'd be left wondering, well, how come he's not crushed? And I look over in 53 and he is crushed. And I'd be left saying, wait a minute, I'm confused. We've discussed already the distinctions between first advent and second advent and how they were not separated in prophetic revelation. And, and passages like this will blend quite a few first advent and second advent features. But simply notice, he is a chosen one. The Father loves him. The Holy Spirit is given to him. And this is what we see fulfilled at the baptism event, when John the Baptist, when the herald anoints the king. And this is what we see happening. The Holy Spirit comes, as it says here, and he is anointed. This is why it is said that he is, um, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Now here he comes as the king, and he's anointed. And just in case there's any confusion <laughs> about who the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 is, the Father himself makes it clear. When he says, this, this one is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Same language as chapter 42, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There can be no doubt that when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus Christ, the whole cosmos, human beings and angels alike, fallen angels alike, put on notice, this is fulfillment, Isaiah 42, the chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is the seed of the woman. This is the, the coming Messiah. It is left without any question. And so as I look in Matthew chapter 3, why am I not surprised that after the statement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we have devil on the scene. Right? Satan is right there, front and center, immediately. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Immediately. Boom. Public announcement, public uh, anointing, empowerment by the Holy Spirit, first order of business, angelic conflict. Satanic attack. And I find this to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. In that for 30 years now plus, okay, up to 35 years now, um, the devil's been in the dark. <laughs> Remember, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Fallen angels don't know everything. Things into which angels long to look. We understand from Scripture itself that, that uh, angels have to learn. And they have to have things revealed to them. And they have to put two and two together to get four. And uh, for 35 years now, the devil's been in the dark. Wondering. You know, did that, uh, did that Bethlehem baby massacre, you know, did that work? The devil motivated uh, 
Herod to go in there and kill all those babies two years of age and under. And, and then what? Well, don't know. You know, did we get him? He's still alive? Kind of like the American military. We turned uh, Tora Bora like 4,000 million degrees. And uh, then we're left wondering, well, was, was uh, Osama bin Laden, was he in there? You know, is he, is he, is he toast? Is he, you know, is he, we don't know. We, we, we think so. We hope so. It'd be kind of nice, but who knows? You know, we, we went in there with the Air Force and, and did all that. And certainly if he was there, he didn't live through it, but <laughs> was he there? We don't know. And so there's Satan and the massacre of the babies in Bethlehem. Can he breathe easier? Can he relax now? I mean, for 4,000 years, he's been sweating that seed of the woman promise that says that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And he's been, for 4,000 years, I mean, first he tried killing Abel, and that didn't work. And then, you know, he's been trying to, to kill that seed of the woman promise for 4,000 years. And then he massacred all those babies. Now he's wondering, is that it? Am I off the hook? Did I skate? <laughs> Until 35 years later, 30, 35 years later, on this day... Here's this prophet, and here he anoints the Christ, and here's the Holy Spirit and the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan just goes, oh, no. <laughs> All right. I don't know if Satan swears or anything, but he might have had stronger language than that. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. And so we have the temptation of it immediately. Immediately he puts them under attack. And, and we'll do the more of this next week, but in all of his temptations, when he says, if you are the Son of God, he knows it's true. They're all first-class condition ifs. It's all, since you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, and I know you are, turn these stones into bread. Because I know you can. All right? All the temptations, he knows who he's dealing with. And we'll deal with that when we get into the, the temptation event. Point C. John the Baptist continually exalted the coming one and denied any greatness for himself. John the Baptist continually exalted the coming one and denied any greatness for himself. He had fulfilled his purpose. He baptized him. The herald anointed the coming king. His job's done. Continually exalted the coming one and denied any greatness for himself. John one nineteen through thirty four. We've already read John three twenty two through thirty six. John one nineteen through thirty four and John three twenty two through thirty six. We've already read the John three passage. But again, subpoint C. This is under point four. The herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. Subpoint C. John the Baptist continually exalted the coming one and denied any greatness for himself. And when all the priests and Levites and these officers came to him, are you Elijah? He said, nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Are you the Christ? Nope. After me is coming one. Verse 29 of John 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. Sin, singular. 
man's lost estate. The, not sins, plural. Every single sin that's ever been done from Adam's first, Adam and Eve's first sin all the way to the last sin that will ever be done at the end of the millennium. Those are personal sins, plural. And all of those were put on the cross. But this is sin singular, which is actually taken away. Sin, the estate of sin, the fallen estate of sin that is the curse of man. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. This is the manifestation of the king to Israel. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. See, the Baptist was coming, and here come all these people, repenting, confessing, preparing to enter in the kingdom. And here comes a guy, and he's a sinner, and he confesses, he repents, he's baptized. Here's another sinner, confesses, repents, he's baptized. Here's another sinner, confesses, repents, he's baptized. All right? But now here comes one. And he doesn't repent of anything. He doesn't confess anything. He does, but he gets baptized. And the heavens are open. The Holy Spirit descends. Israel has been presented their king. Undeniably. He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the, or with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. All right? Christ is the issue, not the baptizer. And the baptizer understood that. Point five. This unique baptism event, never been done before, hadn't been done since, can never be done again. This unique baptism event was the public anointing of the Christ and marked the beginning of his earthly ministry. Isaiah 61.1 This unique baptism event was the public anointing of the Christ and marked the beginning of his earthly ministry. Done publicly. Everything done out in the open. Christ even admitted that when he talked to his accusers at the trial and he said, uh, you know, I haven't been hidden away and taught things secretly. I've been wide open teaching in the, in the temple, teaching on mountaintops, teaching to crowds. There's no end of witnesses to everything I've ever said. He was allowed privacy in his growing up. And, uh, and I think there's some principles we can glean from that. But from this point forward, he's right there in the open. Full public view of human and angelic observation. Isaiah 61.1 This unique baptism event was the public anointing of the Christ and marked the beginning of his earthly ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's interesting, this is the text that the Lord quoted when he went into the synagogue and he was asked to read the scroll of Isaiah. This, And he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has anointed me. The receiving of the Holy Spirit was his public anointing to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And stop right there, right in the very middle of verse 2. 
Don't finish verse 2. Don't finish the paragraph in verse 3. Just stop right there halfway through verse 2 for the moment. Okay? Because that's where Jesus all of a sudden stopped his reading, rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down and began to teach. And he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The reason why he abruptly stopped in the middle of verse 2, halfway through verse 2, is because the rest of it is second advent. See, like I say, all of the prophetic revelation of the Christ blended first and second advent together, like we have it here. And so he didn't finish reading verse 2. He didn't finish reading verse 3 because that's second advent. He stopped with verses 1 and 2a because that's first advent. But he goes on, in the day of vengeance of our God. That's second advent. That's wrath. Great tribulation and all the rest. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness. <laughs> he didn't do that for Israel in first advent. All right, Israel crucified their king and said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. This is second advent. They shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And it goes on. The rest of this is second advent millennial in its application. Okay. If you want a quick peek at how Christ used this text, you can get it in Luke 4. This is just one of the easiest ways to see prophetic concepts, things that I call, for example, prophetic shift. It's a term I came up with to describe what happens when all of a sudden the prophetic message shifts in the middle of the verse. And in uh, Luke 4, we have it here. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's reading from Isaiah 61. We just read it. And it gets down in verse 19, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I would expect so. He reads a verse and a half, closes the book, hands it back to the attendant, sits down. <laughs> they were expecting a little bit longer reading there. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's why he had to stop halfway through verse 2. Because that's what was fulfilled. That was first half. And the rest of that hadn't been fulfilled yet. It won't be fulfilled for over 2,000 years. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were coming from his lips or falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? All right, his teaching has overwhelmed them. So this unique baptism event was the public anointing of the Christ. And marked the beginning of his earthly ministry. In the Old Testament, the following offices were anointed. Continuing on in main point five. In the Old Testament, the following offices were anointed. Prophets. Priests and kings, ABC. Prophets, priests, and kings. The anointing of prophets, 1 Kings 19.16. I thought if we had more time, we could look up each one of these. They are excellent, excellent passages. Uh, 1 Kings 19.16. The anointing of prophets. 
Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. So there's the anointing of a king. I could have put that verse down under kings. And Jehu, continuing on out of verse 16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. So we've got a couple of kings mentioned there, but we also have a prophet mentioned there, Elisha, who would be the successor to Elijah, is going to be anointed. Now keep in mind, as this anointing occurred, we'll get more description of that in Ezekiel 28, likewise in in First Samuel 16. It was through the pouring of oil. It was the pouring of oil. Anoint, all anoint means is smear. You want another word for anoint? Smear. All right, but anoint sounds much nicer. (laughs) You know, anoint is is a church word. Smear is kind of crude. All right, but that's what you're doing. You're taking oil and you're smearing the guy's head with it. Or his clothes, or the altar, or the utensils, or whatever it is you're anointing. Okay? If it's a person, it's the head and it drips down and you're smearing him with that oil. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was not smeared with oil, but the Holy Spirit descended upon him. See, because the shadow gives way to the reality when Jesus Christ is manifest as King of Israel, as the Christ of the world. But all the prophets, priests, and kings throughout the Old Testament, their anointing was symbolic. It was was shadow teaching, and so they used oil to represent the Holy Spirit. And... These were the instructions here. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It's interesting. We don't see anointing in the New Testament as far as the church is concerned. We see the laying on of hands, but we don't see the administration of oil. When uh, elders are anointed, we have the ritual of the laying on of hands, we're going to do this in Houston coming up on December 10th for Pastor Robbie Dean. He's being installed at uh, West Houston Bible Church. There is the first pastor of the brand new church getting started at West Houston Bible Church. And the installation of the pastor is going to include the laying on of hands. But we're not going to be smearing oil or doing any kind of Old Testament symbolism of that, that references anointing. That was shadows pointing ahead to Christ. We already have the anointing. In terms of the Holy Spirit who indwells every single believer. See? But the laying on of hands is the public witness and testimony. So, anyway, that's a New Testament application. Um, priests. Exodus twenty-eight forty-one. Exodus twenty-eight forty-one. And this chapter describes all of the garments and how they shall be made and all of the other things. And um, verse 40, For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. Notice, the dress was for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. And sometimes I think um, we go too far when we go the other way and we say, well, you know, um, 
I don't care how ugly the church looks. We're not here to be a fancy temple. We're not here to impress people. We just want to, we just want to teach the word. It's the teaching that's important and not the, how the building looks. And I say, well, you know something? You can carry that just a little bit too far. Because when he established his priesthood, when he established his temple and his tabernacle, and we're not trying to recreate any of that, but there's still a principle there. We shouldn't want to look deliberately look like a bunch of slobs or look like a rundown like we don't care. All right. Don't you think he's worth it? This is both for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. They were anointed. I'm sorry, anointed, ordained, and consecrated. Likewise, kings are anointed. 1 Samuel 9:16, that's the anointing of Saul. 1 Samuel 16 this is the anointing of David. Verse 3, 12, and 13. And then in 2 Samuel 2, 4, David is anointed again. And in 2 Samuel 5, 3, David is anointed again. He's anointed as a boy in chapter 16, but nobody made him king at that time. He's anointed as king of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And then he's made king over all Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And I'm out of time, so you can look that up. I'll give that to you as homework. You can look that up in any event. Here is Jesus Christ at his baptism being anointed as prophet, priest, and king. Now, just like David, he didn't get to be king right away. They rejected their king and they crucified him. And he's been waiting now for the last 2,000 years. But he is king. Just has not yet assumed the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. But he is the rightful king. Anointed as such. Alright. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We ask for your blessing upon this teaching. We ask, Father, that the impact of this message would last longer than the spoken word could ever last the echoes of the vibrations of these earthly words are going to fade away here very quickly. But, Father, the word that you've sent forth is eternal. And it will be planted within our soul. It will dwell richly. It will spring forth and bear fruit according to your design. We know that. We claim that by faith. We claim that as a promise. Your word never returns void, but accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.